1: On today's broadcast of Abounding Grace, we continue our view of Job, chapter 41, one of the most amazing creatures ever mentioned in Scripture. Next. As God continues to respond to Job, Job's questions, without answering, He brings up a variety of things that only he can do, only he can command, reminding Job that he's God and Job isn't. And along the way, he talks of Leviathan, and that's what we'll focus on in the next couple of broadcasts here on Abounding Grace. Welcome to the program from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. Let's catch up with Pastor Gary Wagner in Job chapter 41 for today's broadcast.
0: As with Behemoth in chapter 40, there's a great deal of speculation as to the identity of Leviathan, to our modern way of thinking, and maybe this is the first time you've read this verse as a whole, but it sounds somewhat mythological, a fire-breathing dragon. But nothing in our text would suggest that we take Leviathan as any less real than as the stars or the snow or the mountain goats, the horses, or any of the other creatures that God has created to reveal His glory. He knows what exists in the world better, obviously, than we do. He knows what He can do, and nothing more insults Him than when we presume to say that it is not possible or that the limit of our understanding is the limit of God's power. We need to remember in our day of scientific idolatry that our science does not tell us everything. It doesn't tell us a fraction of what could be told. And what it does tell us is often more like a child's finger painting in comparison to God's majesty. So we need to come as humble learners before God and allow him to rebuke our pride. The Lord certainly knows the direction Western thought and science would go when it turned away from his word. So he left a nice rebuke for its pride. And its pretensions to be able to investigate reality by its canons of materialism. So let's leave the dead. And instead, let's go to the school of the Leviathan. And learn the lesson that God has for us. Here is the main lesson. As untamable as this creature was. Impossible to catch or trap. A fearsome foe to be avoided at all cost. It is a greater folly to think that we can manipulate the Lord. We must instead fear and trust Him. We are incapable of standing in conflict with Him. And remember who was asking for all of this. It was Job. Job wanted to stand before the Lord. So the Lord says, okay, Job, when you best Leviathan, then you can get back to me. When you conquer him, let's talk again. Of course, he wasn't taunting him with this. He was saying, Job, you need to humble yourself before me. You need to recognize my hand in all of the difficult providences that I have brought into your life. For me personally, Leviathan has been a very, very edifying section of God's word. Because I've been reminded about something Calvin said in his institutes. That very often we walk around the earth like little Demigods, little gods, with wanting our every whim and need to be gratified. Our feelings needing to be stroked just the right way. But when we're confronted by God's power, it puts things in the proper perspective. We're reminded that He has a right to do by us, for us, and to us, what he deems is for his glory and for our good. So after reminding Job of Behemoth, the greatest of the land creatures, which apparently, as we have learned, no longer exist, he takes his servant Job into the depths of the sea. And here we find a creature that must, uh, must leave us dumbfounded. Most of the conservative commentators up until the end of the 19th century believed that Leviathan, the best fit was, for, was a crocodile, given what they knew at that time. And this was a noble attempt to capture some of the Leviathan's attributes, though not all of them. Many, of course, do not fit, and many of these attributes were given a metaphysical interpretation, But subsequent archaeological finds since then have made it clear that the earth was once home to a variety of creatures that no longer exist. Some of these specimens are used, obviously, as fodder for movies and unbelieving reconstructions of the ancient world. Yet creatures that do not necessarily exist today did before the flood and perhaps for a period after. And it is evident that Leviathan was such a creature, a sea-dweller of tremendous size with features somewhat like a crocodile, but much larger and with noticeable differences. One of these differences is quite clear. And that is, whereas the crocodile has always been successfully hunted, sometimes to protect men from danger and also very often for food. In fact, the ancient Egyptians had a contest each year to see who could kill the most crocodiles. And the winner was actually considered a hero for the year. But Leviathan, you don't hunt him. You don't catch him. You stay away from him. As strong and deadly as a crocodile can be, Leviathan is altogether of a different magnitude in strength. Notice the initial descriptions in verses 1 through 10. You can't catch him, at least with the usual fishing methods, hooks and spears and trapping nets. They're all useless against him. Verses 3 and 4 may be somewhat satirical, but the point, of course, is he is not going to listen to your cries. He's not going to speak soft words to you. You're not going to talk yourself out of his mouth. He's not going to make a covenant with you. He's not going to serve you. Sometimes, though crocodiles are dangerous... They have been tamed or at least been rendered less dangerous to their handlers by familiarity and behavioral modification. But Leviathan, verse 8, he's no playmate and you are not going to be able to bind him. You are not going to be able to catch him. So you can't eat him and you can't sell his body parts. It says in verse 7, his skin is so tough it turns away spears. And the best thing to do when you come upon Leviathan is to, verse 8, remember what you are doing and don't touch him. Get away because it is useless to fight against him and there is no hope in surviving, verse 9, a contest with him. Verse 10, none is so fierce that dare stir him up. Now, notice here how the Lord is using this. And this is how we are to use what is often called the book of nature. God says in verse 10, who then is able to stand before me? Beginning in verse 11, who hath prevented me that I should pay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. So let's pause for a minute and think about what the Lord has been doing and asking Job these questions. Job has defended his integrity, his goodness, more than he has defended God's righteousness. He has demanded an audience with God. Lord, let me come and stand before you. Let me defend myself against my friends' accusations and against Your heavy hand. But in effect the Lord says Job. Until you can overcome this creature. How in the world do you think. You're going to be able to stand before me. I'm the one who made this creature. That no man can tame. And no man can capture. Or even safely touch. So my strength is greater than Leviathan's. I was pleased to reveal a reflection of my glory and my power in him, but Job, Leviathan's magnificence should remind you of how much more glorious and more powerful and more untamable I am. Unbelieving men have studied God's creatures, especially the mighty creatures. But God is the one who revealed the creatures. And when we study God's beauty in nature, His intimacy with nature and the order of nature, we are to love and adore Him. And we are to tremble before Him and fear Him because His hand has made all of these things. And this is the reason as Christians that we have to reject unbelieving, atheistic, materialistic views of nature and of the origin of the universe. (coughs) Because Satan has dreamed these things up and instilled in men to come up with them so that the voice of God in nature is muted. And men study nature as an, an impersonal change, not the revelatory word of God. But here's the problem. If we don't tremble before God in the work of nature, we are never going to tremble before Him as our Redeemer. You see, these things go together. Without natural religion properly concerned, there cannot be a foundation For a supernatural religion. And of course we have gouged out our eyes. So that we no longer as a people. Revere God as our maker. And that's why men are not looking to him. As their redeemer in mass. As they once did. Creation and redemption go together. They are the two chapters in God's one book. And both teach the same message. We are to fear God. Trust His wisdom, bow before His power. So when you look at spiders, and crickets and grasshoppers, snakes, deer, the antelope playing, eagles soaring, when you go to the zoo and see a hippopotamus or an elephant, remember, God is all-powerful. Look at all that He's made, beloved. That's how God uses nature. He says, this is the theater I created to reveal my glory. But closer to home in these first ten verses, God says, Job, Leviathan teaches you that I am untamable. You cannot capture me you cannot confront me. You cannot manipulate or control me in any way as to get what you want. Okay, so far so good. But don't we forget that God is the high and the lofty one that inhabits eternity? Isaiah says that he sits above the circle of the earth with authority And all of the nations before him are but a drop in a bucket. God says, my ways are higher than your ways. And his thoughts are not our thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth are his ways and his thoughts. And to him, we are but a drop in the bucket. Now, he loves us. And he is near to us, and he has made us many promises in the Lord Jesus Christ, but we must never forget, we are not going to tame him. We are not going to control him. We don't have any right to say, hey, it's not fair. And boy, we do, don't we? If we sulk when things aren't going our way, we are actually saying, I'm mad because things are not going my way. Ultimately, unjustified anger is shaking one's fist at God, mad that life is not going your way. When you are disrespectful to your parents, you are angry and disrespectful to God. When you are angry and disrespectful to your wife or husband... These things are really aimed at God. We are mad because life is not going like we want it to go. As Christians, especially beloved, we need to remember that God is a consuming fire and He is in control of all these situations. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. Wherefore, we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken or moved. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. John the Baptist says he will baptize you with, uh, John said, he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. So we've got to remember this about God, and it will help us. It will help us from being pouty. It will help us not to be discontented. It will help us to overcome anger. And that is the deep realization that God is my maker. He is my sovereign Lord. He is my king. He will do what is right by me always. I don't have to understand it. But you know, when I spray poison on the ants, I don't try to explain it to them. I just spray them because I have dominion over the ants. And God certainly doesn't have to explain to himself to us. Now, God's not going to spray any poison on us, but the point is we are like the ants. Can you imagine the ants forming a union and saying, hey, that's not fair, You shouldn't be doing that to me. That's what we do to the Lord. That is what Job had been doing. And Job was one of the most godly men that ever lived. So the Lord says to Job, Job to complain against me is absolute folly. It is equivalent to attacking Leviathan. In Psalm 104, the psalm mentions the sailors who apparently spotted leviathan at a distance and can you imagine them hey let's go ahead and swim up to this sea monster and just poke him in the eye and see what happens well that is what we do to the lord brothers and sisters when we complain when we don't pray when we get frustrated Let me tell you what the Lord's antidote to this is. Psalm 62. Look at what our great God commands us to do in verse 8. Now, remember everything I've said about God. He is lofty and high. He sits alone in the circle of the earth. Nations are a drop in the bucket. It is pointless to resist him, to complain, to be so frustrated, to say that's not fair. Verse 8. Now, we could read the entire psalm, but just this one line here. Trust in him when at all times, ye people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Now, you see, at the beginning, Job knows this. But remember, God took everything away from Job. He even killed his children. Of course, Satan was the means, but God was still the one, ultimately, who did all of these things. He sent Job a disease that covered him with oozing boils, painful. And his wife said to him, curse God and just be done with it. And Job said, shut up, woman. Don't be one of those foolish women. Shall we receive good from the hand of the Lord and not evil? Naked I came into the world. Naked I will depart. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You see, Job was doing Psalm 62, 8. He realized, I must pour out my heart to the Lord. He alone is my refuge. There's nothing else I can do. Now, his sufferings have made him bitter at this point. He has somewhat lost hope. And the net result is that he has been insulting God. So God says, Job, let me remind you of Leviathan. So when you feel your heart is overwhelmed within you, when the burdens of life are great and you want to complain or you're tempted to complain, you're tempted to be frustrated, you're tempted to give up and despair, what does the Lord, the Mighty One, say to do? He says, pour out your heart to me. He says, when your heart is overwhelmed within, come to me to the rock that is higher than you. Well, Job started out well, but he didn't stay there. He should have stayed there. Granted, we can fault him all day long, but I dare say most of us would have given up much earlier. But the great thing is, is that the Lord is calling him back to it. And I think he's calling the church as a whole back to it. We live in a culture that fosters discontentment, envy, contention, anger. And it's like an infection. It's like a bad computer problem that comes into our heart and our soul and makes us frustrated, peeved, morose, jaundiced. All of these modern psychosis that we label and drug when reality, the remedy is, God says, pour out your heart to me come to me i'm the rock that is higher than you are in verses 11 through 24 god gives a continued description of leviathan and i think these lines reveal god's mighty power he says in effect job you should not demand an accounting from me for everything under the whole heaven is mine by the way, you need to meditate on that. Let's read it again. Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Now, that's tough because we like to think, I own me. I own my body. I own my health. I own what I have. I own my cars. I own my home. I own my clothes. I even own my sense of worth. God says everything under the whole of heaven is mine. So it may be that there are some reasons in our life when God just says, whammo, and we look around and we ask, why have I been struck with this disease? Why do I have to suffer this loss? Or why am I in this sin that I just can't seem to shake off? I keep calling on the Lord. What is he doing? This just doesn't seem right. It's not fair. Why are my circumstances like this? We need to remember that we live in God's world and in God's house and he will always do good and right by us.